Good afternoon and welcome to the uh, this session, The Future Is Now, with William Gibson. Um, my name is James Bradley. Um, before we begin today, I'd like to acknowledge the Ghana people who are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Having done that, I just need to do a couple of bits of housekeeping before we begin. Um, I'd like to remind you that we'd be terrific if you could support the Authors and Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent. Um, there won't be a book signing at the end of this, obviously, because it's virtual, um, but I encourage you, if you do not, to buy William's books. Um, and I'd like to thank you all for coming um, today. It's fantastic to see people here. I, I did a session here yesterday and I was saying it's the first live thing I've done in more than a year and it was kind of wonderful to be in front of an audience, but it's wonderful to see so many people here and to kind of feel the energy that comes from that. It's, it's, it's been really wonderful. Having said that, I would like to remind um, those of you who are standing and those of you who are sitting to try and observe social distancing as much as possible and just to be aware that we need to, we need to take those take those um, take those precautions. Um, look, I wanted to begin today just by telling a story really quickly, which is that in 1993, um, I was in Adelaide and I went to the university bookshop and I bought a copy of William Gibson's Virtual Light. And, you know, it was 1993, CD-ROMs were all the rage, the game Mist, some of you will remember, had just been released. Um, Wired magazine had just launched a couple of months before. Um, I had Mosaic on my computer. Netscape Navigator didn't even exist yet. Um, and I remember buying this book and, you know, the list of books I can honestly say have changed my life is actually really, really short, but that book changed my life. I remember, I remember hearing William Gibson say once of William Burroughs um, that the first time he read him, it was like someone had taken the top of his head off and put a blender in. And I remember having that response to virtual light. I, re I remember that sense that having read it both the present and the future looked completely different. You know, all of these things that I could feel were happening around me had somehow coalesced into something. Now, I think across a dozen novels, you know, William Gibson has kind of helped shape not just the way we see the future, but the way we see the present. Um, he's offered a kind of complex and kind of evolving critique of the ways in which capitalism, technology, surveillance, inequality all interact. Um, I think his work is often called prescient, but I think in a weird kind of way that's to undersell it. You know, in a st it seems to me to occupy a kind of liminal space where the past, the present, the future are all kind of present and converge. And where the kind of, that allows you to see the, kind of the science fictionality of our present incredibly clearly. And I think that's nowhere more the case than in his two most recent books, which we'll be talking about today, which are the peripheral and peripheral and agency, which I'm going to attempt to hold up, um, for those of you who have not read them. Um, but yes, I, I, they're books which seem to me to feel like visions of the textures of the world we inhabit today. So I'm really excited to, to introduce William Gibson to you. Thank you, James. <clears throat> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Look, I thought, because I want to talk quite a bit about the peripheral and agency today, and I thought that rather than me attempt to explain them, um, I would ask you to just tell people here who may not have read them 
what they're about. What, what I guess kind of an outline of the, of the plot of the two books or of the conceit of the two books. Well, I, I think the best way for me to do that might be to start with a very brief reading from the peripheral. It's, it's from, uh, oh, further than halfway into the book. And it's one of the two main viewpoint characters. It's from the viewpoint of one of the two main characters. And until that point, she hasn't understood what these strange people she's communicating with digitally in from about 70 years in her future are talking about when they mentioned the, mentioned the jackpot. And it took me, I, I think I was frightened to have Wilf, this Englishman in 70 years in Flynn, an American's future, actually articulate this because I had never really brought it, been willing to bring it together in my, in my own mind. So I really slowed the writing as I neared what I started to realize would be Wilf's explanation. And in the end, it's, it's very brief, but it, uh, it had a really profound, profound effect on, on me emotionally. And it's just a little, you know, I think some people may, may be able to read the book and just slide past it. But at that point, I think I was first willing to accept that what Wilf is describing might be our future. And so I'll just, I'll read, I'll read that part and then maybe we can go on from there. Is that good? That sounds great. Okay, thank you. Here we go. <clears throat> oh, she... She's communicating with Wilf. Wilf is on a, a sort of two-wheeled iPad on a stick that she calls a wheelie boy. And they're com very common toys in 30 years from now. She's 30 years in our future. Wilf's face on the wheelie's tablet had lit her way downstairs. She'd found Ben on the porch steps guarding the house, and he'd been all embarrassed getting up with his rifle and trying to remember where not to point it. And she'd seen he had a cap like Reese had had with the pixelated camo that moved around. He hadn't known whether to say hello to Wilf or not. She told him they were going to sit out under the tree and talk. <clears throat> he told her he'd let the others know where she was, but please not to go anywhere else and not to mind any drones. So she'd gone out to the chair and sat in it with Wilf and the wee boy, and he'd started to explain what he called the jackpot. <clears throat> and first of all, that it was no one thing. 
that it was multi-causal with no particular beginning and no end, more climate than an event, not the way apocalypse movies like to have a big event, after which everybody ran around with guns looking like Burton and his posse, or else were eaten alive by something caused by the big event. Not like that. It was, it was androgenic, he said, and she knew from Ciencia Loca and from National Geographic that that meant because of people. Not that they'd known what they were doing and meant to make problems, but they caused it anyway. And in fact, the actual climate, the weather, caused by there being too much carbon, had been the driver for a lot of other things. How that got worse and never better and was just expected to, ongoing. Because people in the past, clues as to how that worked, had fucked it all up. Then not, not been able to get it together to do anything about it. Even after they knew, and now it was too late. So now, in her day, he said, they were headed into androgenic, systemic, multiplex, seriously bad shit. Like she sort of already knew, figured everybody did, except for the people who said it wasn't happening. And those people were mostly expecting the second coming anyway. She looked across the silver lawn that Leon had cut with that push mower whose cast iron frame was held together with actual baling wire to where moon shadows lay past stunted boxwoods and the stump of a concrete birdbath they pretended was a dragon's castle while Wilf had told her he killed 80% of every last person alive over about 40 years. So that's the jackpot. I mean, it, one of the things, oh. <laughs> one of the things that's interesting to me about that idea of the jackpot is that in your earlier fiction, there's this kind of sense that the future is something that's distributed like that. The, the, the sense that the future is a thing that just keeps on happening. The change is something that keeps on happening. But here, it's kind of disaster that keeps on happening. And I, I just, I kind of wondered two things. The first is, having written that probably eight years ago now, does it feel closer or further away? And the other is whether, it, whether that kind of sense of dread you describe signals a kind of shift in your feelings about the future or just a kind of recognition of the future. Well, I was, I think it was over 20 years ago that I first, you know, allowed myself to really look at what, you know, what we knew then about climate change. And it seemed to me that simply too grim to incorporate directly into what I was doing. <clears throat> so in various ways, I steered 
away from it. The, uh, I, I think setting, setting, um, I'll give it right now, vir virtual light in a fair, really near future, actually sort of in our recent past now, setting that in a San Francisco that had experienced the big one in, in terms of earthquakes. And so was in itself already a sort of apocalyptic, apocalyptic place. California had split into two different states. The uh, <clears throat> American government looked pretty much like the one we just had four years of from what you can gather from the characters, you know, what you know of the characters' backgrounds. So it's, it stayed there and it kept turning up, it kept turning up in, as an aspect of the background in everything I did as I went along until I got to, to the peripheral which I uh, always like madly optimistically imagine to be a one-off and not the beginning of a, of a trilogy. But for various, various reasons, you know, in the, in the world outside, you know, the world I'm writing about, uh, agency, agency wound up being a sequel, and in some sense, a prequel to the peripheral. And I, I assume that my next book, which may or may not be titled simply Jackpot. I said that one day, but I now regret it because I can't seem to write as long as I know what the title will be. So I snuck Either it snuck up on me, or more likely I snuck up on it, simply because I found it, you know, too grim and final to uh, be enjoyable to write about. Now I find it sort of unavoidable. I mean, that kind of sense, I mean, you talked about the kind of editor it becomes unavoidable. One of the things, I mean, one of the things I found intriguing about the peripheral when you wrote is that after the three books before it, which were set kind of essentially in the present day, you, you jumped forward, yet somehow we're using that to talk about now. But the agency, agency in particular had quite a difficult relationship with the present, didn't it? Because it got knocked off course multiple times by the events in the book, uh, the events in the real world overtaking the book, didn't it? Yes, indeed. I, I hadn't, uh, <clears throat> I really hadn't expected Donald Trump to be elected. And I didn't expect it until uh, the UK voted for Brexit. And that stunned me sufficiently that I began to, to think that if that could, if, if I could be that wrong about that, or indeed if, 
if the United Kingdom could be that wrong about that, that it was, uh, it seemed actually entirely possible that, that the United States could elect Trump. But I still, I was kind of like, no, it's not that weird. Um, and the world's just not that weird. But I woke up the day after the world had proven itself to be exactly that weird and looked at, looked at the book I was writing at the time that in a sense became agency and thought the, the present, which was like the very near future for us, the, virtually the present, in, that I've been writing about isn't going to exist. People simply aren't going to feel the same, the same way now that this had happened. And I was really like very unhappy with that because I had really liked uh, Eunice and, and Eunice and Verity, the the two. The two, in a sense, the two main characters in in agency, and and Verity was a woman testing testing a, a piece of uh, Silicon Valley hardware that turned out to be purloined military a turlo, a purloined military AI, but had been described, you know, very optimistically to my publisher as a near future romp. And, but after, after a while, it, it occurred to me, it, occur, it occurred to me that when I thought about Eunice and Verity now, they seem to be living in, they could be living in an alternative time track. And so that took me to the various alternative time tracks in the peripheral. And suddenly it, suddenly it fit together. And so I, I began again with those two characters, but it's, a, a, it's not a romp. It's a completely completely different story. And I suppose it's actually more literally, more literally a peripheral, or rather more literally uh, a sequel to one novel that I've ever written to, to another. They've all been sort of various timelines, crisscrossing in the same world previously, but now, now this is all headed and you know headed headed up the line in the same direction. I, I wonder whether I'm I'm suddenly aware that because I know the books reasonably well, uh, some people in the audience might not. Uh, the, there's a kind of conceit in the books that in the distant future they work out how to communicate with the past, and so they can. Interact yes. with the past. Oh, you, you can probably explain it better than me, Bill. <laughs> oh, well, they can. I didn't. I, I wanted to save myself from time travel paradoxes, which I'm not fond of anyway. And there's sort of a 
general assumption in the science fiction rules of time travel paradoxes is that once you go back, you'll change the course. You'll cha change the course of history from the point in the past where at which you arrive. <clears throat> and I had seen seen my friends Bruce Bruce Sterling and Lewis Shiner get neatly around that in a story called Mozart in Mirror Shades, in which they, they simply change the rules. So you go back, you go back, but your future doesn't change. But from the point at which you arrived, there's a branch off into a point, a point, there's a branch caused by your arrival. And in that story, they needed it so that our near future could, uh, you know, could could go back and and uh, strip mine the past for coal, gold, and whatnot, like for physical. So physical time travel was was possible there, but in my version of that, physical time travel simply isn't possible. However digital communication is and digital communication can you know be anything between two two iPhones to um, a controller helmet and some sort of robotic dog or what you know whatnot but for for what the people in the the far further future call a peripheral, which is a sort of uh, semi semi organic android, which which you can you can control remotely digitally. So if you have one of those in the past or in the future, and a digital device, you can experience the other time fully as though you were there when you when you're connected to the device and these alternative timelines which are called stubs get created by the super rich basically don't they who play with them well they're not it's not necessarily limited to the super rich we don't we don't happen to meet any of the any of the less affluent stub enthusiasts, but it so it seems on uh, evidence in the book that uh, you know there might be quite a lot of these stubs around, but the people who created them have gotten tired of them, and you know in worst case scenarios if if someone a sadist creates them and makes just makes bad things happen by you know changing changing the course of histories in ways he assumes will will even make even make things worse. And it's being one of those loose and loose in, in Wolf's world in the future already, which is throwing some interesting twists into the thing.
It's very complicated, I'm afraid. But. I remember in something like Star Trek once there's this time travel plot and the characters just look at it and go, we hate time travel, like we never understand what's happening. But I always think it makes sense in these books. It, 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 it's a very kind of coherent, a coherent idea. Um, but, I mean, I actually think the stubs themselves, the, I remember the first time I read the book, I read The Peripheral, and it seemed to me such a horrifying idea at some level. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of like ant farms, you know, and they're people's realities. And it, it seemed to me to be an incredibly powerful metaphor for... I guess the way that the powerful can kind of control the world. I mean, you know, in retrospect, a lot of the the stuff seems to prefigure a lot of the stuff in these books about the manipulation of the stuff seems to prefigure the Russian interference in elections and a series of things like that. I mean, that, that's how you'd see them, perhaps, what it is, as a kind of grotesquery almost. Yes, and uh, I'm sure they, I'm sure they're drawing heavily on those elements of. Um, the present, because you know that ultimate, ultimately, I'm convinced that ultimately all science fiction becomes totally obsolete in terms of science fiction and becomes of value to us as a really interesting and unusual window to look at how the past viewed the present. And, you know, your, your really best guess predictive science fiction is melting like an ice cream cone <laughs> on a hot day as soon as you, you know, put the last dot in. It's headed for the future where it will be no more realistic than Jules Verne. And I, I think that's only natural. And I actually rather enjoyed that knowing that or accepting that. So that, you know, the neuromancer as sort of zowie as neuromancer presented a, a sort of internet back in 84 when it was published. Um, it, there's still a point at which the protagonist, when, it, when the going gets really rough, he calls out for a modem, <laughs> which, which <clears throat> makes no sense at all, considering the level of technology he's working with. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'll admit that I encounter, probably encountered the, the word the day before I wrote that passage and put it in, put it in, not knowing actually what it meant. And there's also a, a dot matrix printer with, with a, a long spool of spool of paper at one point in Neuromancy. And also, I think that you know, you, you know, young people, hey, well. You don't even have to be a young person now. You start reading this, you get to get a few chapters in, and you go, I've got it. This is about what happened to all the cell phones. And so, you know, you can, I, I can't win, but I sort of enjoy, I enjoy it that I, I can't win 
and uh, I'm kind of amazed when amazed when I do. I've always loved the fact that in Neuromancer, I mean, the opening line is one of the iconic lines of science fiction, which is, you know, the, the sky was the colour of a dead television tube, which is now a completely vanished technology. So it's kind of this wonderful thing where this image of futurity has actually become the past. Absolutely. And I don't think I even noticed that <clears throat> until... The book, not even with when the book was published, I noticed that when I myself got my my first internet connection, which wasn't until I think 1997, I got I was a very late adapter. Um, the I mean I. To go back to the kind of stubs, I mean, I, there's a kind of grotesquery to them, but they're actually a really interesting idea, it seems to me, because they do emphasise something about the contingency of history, don't they? Which is often quite a difficult idea at the moment, that idea that, you know, that there are kind of alternative futures can be, a, uh, can be quite a difficult one to get to. And they seem to me to be a quite powerful metaphor with which to think about the idea of alternative futures. <clears throat> Thank you. Um... Yeah, well, I find them, I find them that, I find them that myself, and I don't. I guess I, I don't. I just don't assume that the future is prefigured. You know, we can we can cause it to change, whether entirely inadvertently or <clears throat> simply through not taking not taking the right course but that's life <laughs> or you know that's existence yeah and one of the things that i find fascinating about the books though is that you know wolf talks a great deal in 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 the peripheral about grief and about that sense of you know, he's very angry and he's very upset about the world that they've made. But in an odd kind of way, both of these books, and indeed the ones before them, they're very modulated, they're very careful, there's a kind of generosity and humour to them, but there's a, there's a kind of white-hot anger at the core of them, isn't there? And, and one of the things that fascinates me is the way that the books modulate that anger and manage it. I mean, the future that you present in the peripheral and agency is one that's in many ways much more horrific than the ones in the other books. I mean, so it's, a, it's a future which is both horrific in what's preceded it and where they are, even though it's a technologically extremely advanced future, isn't it? It is. And it's only there, that future only exists by virtue of there having been, uh, in effect, a miracle. And during for whatever reason or lack of reason, or really, like, you know, to help an author out, there, there's been a, a sort of semi-singularity around uh, nanotech, nanotechnology and <clears throat> that while 80% of the human population is dying from one thing and another, they, they you know, someone is someone has, you know, 
finally figured out to make a, a pretty functional, uh, pretty, you know, pretty functional, effective form of nanotech. So using that, they're able to, they're able to build structures that improve, improve the, the climate in to an extent. They, you know, they're, they're starting to be able to make that more manageable. Other, other things that happened that have, in effect, protected, uh, protected us. But for me, I, I've all, I'm always aware, even though I use that stuff extensive, extensively in these books, use that imaginary technology that it's only there because I've said, okay, you know, press the science fiction miracle button and this just happened. Uh, so, you know, there's no guarantee at all that we're going to, we're going to, going to be the beneficiaries of a sort of benignly half-assed nanotech singularity. I think I like the term benignly half-assed. Um, uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the delights of agency, I think, is that it's a book with incredibly high stakes. I mean, they're racing to stop the end of the world. You know, you're dealing with this fairly horrific future and a fairly horrific present. But it, it's a book that it feels like you're kind of having fun in. You know, I mean, there's a wonderful moment where Eunice says, and Eunice is an AI basically. Um, and she says to one of the characters at one point, you know, lighten up, the world's ending. Um, I, I, I kind of wondered whether that, that kind of playfulness, that, that sense of humour is actually a way of kind of holding back kind of despair and rage in the work or wh whether it's something that's, you know, I mean, is it, is it that kind of if you didn't laugh, you'd crawl under the furniture and die kind of response at work? Well... <clears throat> I think that, like that, I think there's always been a comic element in my work, hmm. always. Even in, uh, even in neuromancer, there there are things that that I, you know, like acts of humor. There there are humorous humorous elements, and but. Not everyone reads it, reads it, reads it that way. It, it's, um, I mean, that's how reader, you know, readers and writers interact. The writer writes something, and the reader reads something, but it's not necessarily the same thing when the when the reader reads it. And so that it isn't. I don't see it as being a, a sudden change in what I'm doing. I, I see it as a kind of arc. The uh, the three bridge books, which are quite serious in their way, have a more open have a more openly humorous aspect. And um, 
even um, well, I think it's con I, I think that's continued, mm. and in a way, I think I've always I've always needed that. You know, when when I wrote Neuromancy, I, I started it in 1981. We were we were living full on Cold War, and I assumed that that you know all of the smartest people. I knew, the most informed people I knew, assumed that the world might literally end every day in mutually assured nuclear destruction. And, and that's a, it's funny, that's an aspect of our experience that as soon as it faded away, we just sort of forgot about it. it it's, uh, it, it hasn't, uh, I, I don't think it's found its way into previous generation sense of where people my age were 35 years ago. So when I wrote Neuromancer in, in the first place, I assumed that it was very optimistic because it supposed that this future would be there and that the uh, there has been uh, in Neuromancer, a, a sort of abortive nuclear war, but it seems to have been shut down by multinational corporations realizing that that was very bad for business. Uh, we don't know how exactly. That's never, that's never explained. Uh, the only... The, there's also no... There's no textual evidence in Neuromancer that allows you to prove that the United States still exists as a nation state. It sometimes seems like it's something entirely else, like sort of a, a cluster of city-states, perhaps. It, it's, it's impossible to prove from, from the text itself. But I was, what I was unable to see was the, the Soviet Union falling apart in the meantime. It just seemed so monolithic and perpetually backward that it's still there. And, you know, it's, it's still there in Armitage's day. And, and in, in the, you know, in the day of the lives of, of Case and, Case and Molly, they don't think of it much. But I, <clears throat> that one was like the cell phone, so I just couldn't get that at all. But I mean, the, that kind of sense of an altered America is there in the peripheral as well, isn't it? Particularly, I mean, that kind of... One of the things I think makes the peripheral so powerful as a novel is all of the stuff in West Virginia with the... Uh, the for those of you who haven't read it, there's one of the strands of the novel takes place in, in kind of backwards America amongst kind of people who are former, they're veterans and they're, they're the kind of urban, they're the kind of rural poor. And there seems to me to be a kind of really grounded kind of emotional texture to all of that. I mean, it, <laughs> that, that's your country originally, isn't it? I mean, was there a sense in writing the book that you were going back to somewhere you knew? Well, yes, although <clears throat> the, 
I, and I was aware of this when I was writing it, but, <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't particularly want the reader to know. You know, I grew up there, but that was so long ago that it's, it's no longer, it's no longer very much, it's very much that place. And I have not, I've only been back a few times, but by keeping, keeping track of it on Twitter, for instance, yeah, I, I can see that it's, it's the place where I'm, it's the place where I'm from. And there's still a, a lot of the, the culture that I grew up with is, is still, still there. And some of the parts of it, I have to say, some of the parts of it I grew up with that caused me to not want to stay are there a lot more openly after the past four years than they were in my day. Right? So it's, I'm stretching, I'm stretching it, I'm stretching it a bit, a, a bit there, I think. I, I did my best, but I'm, I'm basing it on, it's not, it's not like, it's not as though I knew what it was like today and could really knew it personally and could extrapolate from there. I'm extrapolating from my childhood, which I know it's no longer that much like, and from my sense of it from the internet. It's interesting to me, though. I mean, the I wonder whether, I mean, in Virtual Light and those books, there's those wonderful bits about the are they counterfactual? I'm trying to remember the term. The counterfactual news organisations which investigate news organisations you disagree with. I mean, that that sense of a kind of completely messed up media landscape is there in a book like Virtual Light. But do you? I mean, were you taken by surprise, in a sense, by the? both the degradation of the kind of mediascape, but the, the, the kind of rise of kind of right-wing and racist stuff over the last five to ten years. I mean, does that, was that something that came out of nowhere for you or was it something that you felt No, I, not uh, unfortunately. Uh, I just wondered where it had gone because I, it, I think it, for, in some ways... And not just in the the South in America, but in 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 some ways it's it's always it's always been there. But it we went through a period where there was, there was a sort of taboo or something that kept it kept it from being expressed. And one could, uh, I mean, I, I remember thinking it at some point over, over, over the past decade, thinking, where's all the anti-Semitism gone? That used to be, that used to be more, <clears throat> a lot more upfront. And I never see it, you know, I, I never see it anywhere. And 
Oh, lo and behold, it, it's, you know, it surfaced. And it, it sort of rides along. Uh, I think one of the good things that's been happening over the same period of time, though, is that it's, be, it's, it's become an issue. It's become something people talk about. You can talk about it much more openly. And, and totally, you know, you can just talk about it now. And somehow it, it was not, it was, it was not available that way for a long time. And I, you know, I'm not sure why, but you know, I'm, I'm glad we're, I'm, you know, I'm glad it's, it's out in the open anyway. And people are noticing. So, like, I thought we might make some time for questions in a moment. Um, I just before we do, could I ask you a kind of? I want to ask you a kind of question. And I appreciate that the purpose of science fiction is not predictive, but I mean, I wonder whether that writer who was working on a typewriter in the early nineteen eighties, writing writing Neuromancer, looking at the world that we've ended up in, which, you know, your books have played a big part in shaping, I think. Is this the kind of world you would have envisioned? Is it better? Is it worse? I mean, it's a question I'm curious about. Like, is, is, is this the world you might have imagined? Well, <clears throat> it, I think it's, it's a world that in some ways I, I was, even when I was writing Neuromancer, I was on the brink of imagining, if I, I can say that. And I'm not boasting, but it, you know, quite perhaps the opposite. But there's a, a funny little piece in Neuromancer where Case hears from another room while he's doing something really like, like film noir in cyberspace in, in the room he's in. He hears from another room uh, what seems to be is part of an infomercial. Uh, and the, this little, this, this voice that he hears is describing the, a number of the absolutely mundane uses for that technology. Like, you know, your mother can send your grandmother can send you her address for apple pie or whatever. Because I had realized by that point in the book that it was another part of me was starting to extrapolate what this technology would actually be used for if you were a sort of William Burroughs character. William Burroughs slash Lou Reed character. And, and so I had this, you know, I had to keep the, uh, keep the uh, noir detective thing, rock and roll thing rolling. But I, while I was doing that, I was going, wow, if we actually had this stuff, it certainly wouldn't all be like, wouldn't all be like this. So that, that little... <clears throat> Little infomercial stands stands for that, and somehow 
over uh, from then on over the course of my material uh, rather the course of my career I would be I would occasionally have only very occasionally have moments where I took whatever I was took whatever I was writing and imagined it happening in my future or my children's future. And I was also like, whoa, that's nasty. And I would just put it, I would just put it aside because the only way I could uh, really deal, deal with it and actually produce the stuff was, was to, to, to have it compartmented in the novel writing part of my part of my person, which in some odd way I don't I sometimes I don't have much much access to myself except when I'm actually doing it. Thank you. Um, did uh, did anyone have questions? If you do have questions, we need you to move to the mic. Hi. Yeah. One. Yes. Hi. Yes. Hi. Um, it's lovely to meet you. I'm. I love your books, and I think Neuromancer is the coolest book ever. Um, Thank you. Reading your books, I have. I've never understood how you can predict just certain things about the future so well, and I feel that you must just read everything. Um, so I have a sort of twofold question. Um, who are you reading at the moment and who do you feel to be, I suppose, the most intelligent and informed minds about the future? So whose commentary of the future should we be listening to at the moment? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm terrible. I'm terrible at lists, but... I think it's all, the way the way my mind works. I don't have actually don't have lists. Uh, this is the you know like these are the here's the five most you know informed and intelligent people I know, and it sort of changes from day to day or from moment moment to moment. Um, and well, let me see what, what order I would you know. Well, thank you very much, and and uh, I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoy them, and the um, but you you know I do recommend that you keep in mind that that uh, I missed the cell phone entirely, but I'm glad I did because I got that great scene in Neuromancer. I think it's a great scene with the the uh, case case walking among the the uh, ringing pay phones. They've got pay phones in cases future. We we scarcely even have them have them in our in our present. But so I'm I'm certainly not a hundred percent accurate. But what I do in a sense and the internet and social media have been a huge help in this is that in a weird way I do read everything, but not very deeply. <clears throat> Prior to having having the internet, I spent really quite a lot of money on magazines, 
mostly foreign magazines. And <clears throat> magazines are uh, sort of, sort of, uh, they collect novelty. They find novel near novel new things. What, whatever your whatever kind of magazine, it's it's unless it's about the past, it, it collects novelty. So I would buy all sorts of magazines, and and read read them all and read you know everything, and from that, I I could get a sort of. Uh, weak equivalent of the the absolute soup of novelty that social media and the internet present us with today. And and from that soup, and it's really not very deep. It isn't as though I understand much of this, but having that, that soup allows me to find elements of the present that seem to me to have legs, that they might well be meaning something else in, in 20 years. Uh, they, but it just hasn't been noticed yet. And so it's, you know, uh, that's, you know, I think that that's the closest I can explain it. And, it's probably disappointing, but it's a very good question. Thank you. Thank you so much. You. Uh, greetings, my lord. <laughs> Forgive my flippancy. Uh, thank you for joining us digitally from the future. Uh, and congratulations on all the books you haven't written yet. I particularly uh, found Chronomancer to be quite uncanny. Um, Thank you. Your books have been turning up in numerous parallel dimensions recently, uh, as you can tell by the different cover art of these copies of Neuromancer. Uh, I was wondering if possibly you could uh, give both of these your psychic autograph simultaneously uh, to help reconcile the temporal rift that I'm dealing with. Well, you know, there you go. Thank you, my lord. <laughs> Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Gibson. Thank you very much for your time today. I was just wondering to what extent, uh, as far as science fiction goes, the settings of your stories, to what extent do the settings influence the sort of stories that you can write and what the characters do in those stories? Well, uh, something I discovered when I was trying, first trying to, to write, is that I couldn't write anything until I, I was able to visualize, you know, like pretty tightly visualize the setting. <clears throat> as long as I had the setting, the characters would come to inhabit it. I, d I don't know why, but it's always, it, that's always been true for me. I, I think we all start differently. But my earliest attempts at fiction are essentially descriptions of, you know, brief descriptions of setting. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, my Thank question, you. My question is, 
has this COVID year been affecting the way you've been writing? Yes, <laughs> it's, it, it has, and, and in, in one way, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly reduced output, and it's, it's given me another, it's, it, it's, it's, it's given me another sort of turnaround period somewhat akin to the one that Trump's election cost. So I, I'm now figuring, you know, figuring how the whole arc of three books could work and in, incorporate COVID without having to change anyone. However, there is mention and I don't. I forget whether it's in uh, the peripheral or uh, agency of Wilf. Wilf's talking to his wife about it, and his, his wife says, "Well, she she hasn't hit the pet. She hasn't. Uh, they haven't. I says of of various time. They haven't hit the pandemics, plural yet, and so." That, just that little bit, like, whoa, saved me. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, I can, I, you know, it, it sort of, it sort of all fits. I wish I knew how it ended, but you know, maybe it never will. It, it, yeah, it's scary. It's scary. I was, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. This quickly, I was expecting pandemics, but not so quickly. Thank you. We look forward to seeing how it ends. <laughs> um, Thank you. I think we've got time for one more question. Hello, Mr. Gibson. Um, thank you very much for being with us today virtually. It seems quite appropriate, actually. Um, you are one of the true godfathers of science fiction and have introduced. Uh, all of us to, to such a, a wealth of different worlds. One, one of my favourite books uh, is The Difference Engine. Um, I was just wondering um, whether or not you were aware of what an influence that has had on things like Josh, you know, Josh Whedon's Firefly, this intersection between old and new technologies, and whether or not you've looked with amusement at the whole cyberpunk um, movement and the fact that you know the difference engine was kind of like the the starting point for all of that and what what you think about about that going forward. Oh, gosh, I don't really have time to to give that one justice. <laughs> I, I think, and I, I I wish I could. I mean, I I watch all I watch all of that with interest, you know? Now, sometimes with amusement and sometimes with uh, not, so, not so amused. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, it, it, it's like, it's a great question, but it, it, there would be any kind of real answer. You know, the one I just tried to give, it would, it would take forever. But thank you very much. Thank you. And I 
think that's probably all we have time for just before we end. I, I was very amused the other day to see you being told on Twitter that you didn't understand what cyberspace really was, cyberpunk really was, by someone. Well, <laughs> you know, in, in a very real sense, they're right. Because what people don't realize is that when I wrote Neuromancer and a couple of short stories that led, led up to it, I had never heard the word, the, the term, you know, the term cyberpunk was, it, it hadn't arrived yet. And uh, when, it, when it did arrive, I, I thought, hmm, I don't know if that's a good idea. But, <laughs> you know, if, if, we, if you get a label, it's easier to put you in a box. And which is, isn't exactly what happened with cyberpunk, but things are, you know, if you, if you, if you search cyberpunk on eBay, you'll get a lot of clothing. And, you know, you take it, you know, that's, that's fun if you, if you like that sort of thing. But, Otherwise, it's not something that I've very strongly agreed with, very strongly identified with, I would say. So, thank you. Thank you. Well, I, as I say, I think we have to end there. I'd like to thank Bill very much for his incredible generosity and wonderful session. Perhaps if we could all... Well, thank you, James. I, it's, it's just been great. I really enjoyed it. Now, as I say, the books are available over at the tent. If you haven't bought them, unfortunately, they can't be signed, but perhaps we can use the psychic signing method that we've, uh, you know, prototyped over here. Um, and look, uh, as you move away, um, could I ask everyone as you move away to uh, observe distancing and just be careful about that as you move away? Thank you very much, and thank you again, William. Thank you, James.